welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm Abraham. And I am Ryan O. Um, host and co-host. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, today we are talking about a special topic, one that I have been pretty intrigued by for quite some time now. Yeah. And I'm kind of intrigued by it. Yeah. More days, some days more than others. Um, so what are we talking about? Memory. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a teaser yeah. there. <laughs> Just an act. Um, yeah, so we're talking so about there, memory. Yeah, and there is a ton to cover when yeah. it comes to memory, right? So much so that there's a few topics you might be looking forward to hearing uh, hearing on this episode, and we're probably going to save quite a few of them for future episodes. Yes, we could just realize that we can unpack each of these, and we could probably talk for a good 10 or 12 hours on them. Yeah, so at it's, least. It's better to cut those into shorter episodes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I guess I'll just jump into some of the, the history and what I dug into, and we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, that's good. I am fond of a particular book uh, that was kind of like a skeptical guide towards looking at psychology. Sweet. Um, so that's kind of like where I'm referencing some of my things that I'm looking at. Love it. And at least in that source where I was looking, they were kind of talking about like memory was kind of a real big area that people started getting interested in trying to understand how it worked or where it was compartmentalized and those sort of things sometime around 129 CE. Okay. Now, that could have gone. Ago. Yeah, that was a long time ago, 1900-ish years ago, right? Um, but it was surely talked about before then and intriguing for others. Sure. Um, but I think that's kind of where the compartmentalization, like where was it actually stored, was really kind of okay. coming about. Right. Um, so what I've what I've always found interesting is that there's a certain place or a certain power or some certain area, like the brain, right, where the right. stuff's presumably stored. Sure. Or, and, or if you're some of those old philosophers, our memories were stored in the ether that just floated around our heads. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and I guess the the ways in which our culture kind of normally talks about it is the part that I've been really interested in as well. Mm-hmm. So in particular, like memory is like X. Have you heard any of those? Like memory is like something. Um, sure. And anything comes to mind? Uh, memory is like a... I'm trying to think of like the the process of reconstructing memory is like painting maybe. Okay, so painting that would probably be pretty relevant. Uh, when, I mean, I guess any part of time, right? Like sure. there's there's always been paintings around. Yeah. Um, but then what happens when like technological advancements come around? Oh yeah. So, so mem- uh, memory is like uh, a file drawer. Ooh yes. So uh, there was one reference that I read in the 1980s where they're actually referencing like. Uh, kind of like a library situation. So you yeah. walk down these stacks and you can kind of find like where these memories are stored and they're kind of painting that sort of a picture. I wish my memory was that good. <laughs> yeah. And then you see computers come around. And it's like, oh, memory is kind of like a computer. Mm-hmm. So you can get references to different types of memory that way. So it's like RAM or it's like ROM. There's short and long-term, right? Sure. Um, so for me, I guess when I was first oriented towards that, I like to kind of prime the listeners with <laughs> is why, why would those sort of things change? Like, is that a part of memory? Right. Like, is memory kind of changing over time, or is it like how we're talking about it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny, and I've mentioned this to uh, when, I'm, when I'm teaching my classes, this tendency to compare our behavior and our brains and processes that we engage in, that our mental processes, with the relevant technology, yeah. as if that explained it. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, did our memory get an upgrade as soon as computers came around? <laughs> and like, they used to be file drawers, but now they're hard drives. Yeah. Um, but then I also like to tie it back to the way that um, this information processing theory or this idea that the, our minds work like a computer is kind of silly too, just thinking about the fact that 
a what you see on the screen of a computer is not actually what's happening in the hard drive <laughs> of a computer. Like it's yeah. it's not like when you drag a file to a location and actually get saved in that location. It's literally just a whole bunch of ones and zeros that yeah. are just alternating in a particular sequence on a hard drive. Mm -hmm. So it's like that's you know what you see visually on the screen is not even what the computer is doing. So it's it's just kind of funny. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, I guess what I want to kind of prime the listeners with. That's great. Um, a little bit of that history and kind of be like thinking about those things as we like dive into some of these specifics. Yeah. So we'll probably it's it's common to see people treat technology of the era as a appropriate metaphor for like the process of a mental process or a yeah. behavior or something, even though <laughs> those technologies change drastically and they are totally a just a circumstance of the availability of yeah certain technologies and yeah you can see that change like moment to moment if you're watching a certain generation over even a short period of time today oh yeah or you can see that change just in a difference like i was spending time with family recently mm -hmm. um and we had three or four generations of people talking and nice. there's actually like uh you can see the differences there right uh, sometimes in just how they're talking or disagreements or whatever it is like yeah yeah it's all over the place yeah i mean imagine someone uh who's just you know a generation above us would you know pokemon go they'd be like what are the sounds that you just came out of your mouth <laughs> i don't understand any of them yeah and there you know i've met people uh recently again in just one generation up who i like had to write them instructions on how to use copy and paste on a computer okay and, like, yeah, that stuff that, yeah you know and i'm actually seeing this is kind of interesting in my opinion this is way off topic but yeah. just for fun <laughs> even millennials and some of my students they aren't necessarily all that savvy with technology either so i don't know if there was like a sweet spot or if i just have a super biased sample of people who are good at technology yeah <laughs> I don't, something like that i think it was the latter yeah probably yeah <laughs> Right, let's get back on topic here. Okay, cool. So before we dive into a little bit more about memory and what it is, I, I want to say that I was tempted to talk about forgetting, mm -hmm. and I decided not to cover that in this episode, even though I think a question someone might have coming into this is, how do why do I always forget these things, or yeah. why does my significant other forget these things? Yeah, how do I make my memory better? Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so we, we're going to talk about how to make memory better. But we're going to save forgetting and the different types of forgetting and uh, topics like amnesia for its own episode, I think. Yeah. There's, there's quite a bit to unpack there, and that's one of those things that we've just decided there's so much to say. Let's mm -hmm. let's give it its due and really give it enough time that we can talk about it co comprehensively and make sure that you don't have to listen to our voices for you know, yeah. three hours consecutively. Yeah. So let's, let's start with uh, defining memory then. Let's cool. get into this. So how would you normally define memory? Um... Now or in the past? Uh, whatever you think. So if, if so, if I were just I'm a random Joe Schmo who comes up and is like, "Hey, weird guy who's really tall, <laughs> what's memory?" <laughs> yeah, um, I would try to describe it as actually I I was trying to do this with my cousin actually I kid you not uh, about 24 hours ago. Wow. Um, and it was. Was it for this episode? No, it wasn't oh. actually at all. Oh, it just cool. kind of came up in conversation. Nice. And it was one of those things where I decided like, should I go really into this or not? So right. if I'm not going to go into it too far, then um, I try to get them closer to understanding that, at least the way I view it is, uh, there's something that kind of triggers it, I okay. guess, in the environment. Okay. The environment can be internal, right? And thoughts sure. and those sort of things as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I try to go there. Now, if I have a long time, then I'd probably jump into a lot more of a, at least where I'm from, behavior analytic approach towards those sort of things. Okay. Um, and really get into like how those sort of triggers, I guess, shape up give them examples that are relevant to their life and those sort of things. Cool. Um, but I think 
kind of zoom back even more, Sibley just talked about is kind of like storage and retrieval of information. Yeah. Um, that's how I was pitched, at least it, or some variant of that. Right. A lot in uh, my undergraduate classes, at least. Yeah. So I think, you know, going back to this idea of if you were to just crack open a Psych 101 textbook, you're going to see something that looks like, it might say storage and retrieval of learned information. Okay. It might say the persistence of learned information over time. Some variation of that. And the critical features of this are that you have a period of time between when this was learned mm-hmm. or the behavior was last, uh, the action was last demonstrated, and then a, a period of time later that it was demonstrated again. Yeah. And it might be in the absence of the original cue in which it took place, or it might be uh, you know, just a completely different one. Mm-hmm. So if I say, my name is Scott, and I'm just meeting you for the first time, and then like an hour later, someone, you know, like at a party, let's just say, I'm not setting the context here very well, yeah. but let's say we're at a party, you meet me, my name is Scott, you're talking with someone later and they go, oh, who's that guy over there? And you're just like, ah, uh, uh, and then you look over um, and you're like, oh, it was Scott. Yeah. So um, it was the fact that you were able to do that same response after a period of time um, without having practiced it. Yeah. So that seems to be one of the critical things. And it also means that the behavior had to have already occurred in some way. Either you were exposed to that information um, and maybe you just sort of, you know, set it privately to yourself or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, or you actually said it out loud, nice to meet you, Scott. Um, something like that. But then there's a elapsed period of time without practice and then you come back to it. Now, right. how long the period of time is, we'll, we'll get to that <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah. um, and then there are specific ways that people talk about memory. So um, just coming back to this idea, what is it? What is this, this metaphor or this concept that we're trying to capture that we call memory? I think we use it so intuitively in our speech. And don't really stop to think about what do we really mean when we say memory? Is it an action that you're performing? Is it just thinking about something? Is it all of those things? Is everything that you do memory because everything you do happens based on what you're currently doing? Like if you imagine every three seconds you're at work and you have no memory of where, why you're there or what yeah, you're yeah, doing, yeah. Or what your job is, uh-huh. like you just wander off. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so all the time we seem to be doing this thing, this concept of memory, which is we are behaving with respect to our learned history and mm-hmm. our current environment, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Now, they talk about specific instances of remembering as like a behavior in three ways. Okay. And they are uh, recognition, recall, and relearning. So just off the top of your head, what would you think recognition would mean? Or do uh, you know already? I know. I would say, I, so one cool thing, I guess, a little bit of context for the listeners is um, I've been so removed from like uh, this sort of material that sure. it's actually a pretty good time for me to try to recall something. Oh, cool. So we're doing so, a memory exercise right now. <laughs> yeah. It's a weakness of mine in a way. Um, but yeah, so... Recognition, I would I would be willing to guess it's just kind of like identifying that uh, in the moment. So that whatever that is, that cue, like yeah. recognizing that cue in the moment. Yeah, that's, that's basically it is that you can act in the correct way um, to the thing that you learned previously. And an example of this is like a multiple choice test. If you get the question and then you see a list of answers, and you recognize the correct answer. Mm-hmm. You might not have been able to give the right answer without the multiple choice, okay. but because you can select from an array mm-hmm. of cues, you can identify the one that's correct because you learned it at some okay. point in the past. So then recall, 
is on the absence of those things. Exactly present. right. Yeah, so yeah. the recall, um, more like a fill in the blank, maybe a little bit different. Or right. um, you know, just uh, what was the name of the psychologist who studied classical conditioning? Yeah. Um, then you're asking them to. They don't have a thing to recognize. Yeah. They just have to, based on that cue, come up with that name. Yeah. And then the last one, relearning, is probably the one that I think most people have the hardest time with, right? So Could be. Uh, I guess it's one I'm most run into okay. myself. Um, so as I'm doing like trainings and things like that, people mm-hmm. are like, I've learned this, but you talked about it a little bit in like a different way. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm, they're, they're always saying like, I have to relearn these sort of things. So it should be. Then, if I'm remembering right, um, that these cues now you're trying to set them up to cue something different. It it could be something different. It it usually relearning in this sense refers to when it's the same, and what it really is suggesting is how quickly you learn something after you've already learned it once. So it's like let's cool. say you so learn. That's actually a really good distinction for our listeners. Then. Yeah. So it's not learning something new in the presence of something. Yeah. That you've already learned. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's not it's not like rewriting that. It'd be like if you learned Spanish in high school but you didn't use it and then like ten years later someone mm-hmm. said something to you in Spanish and you were like, Oh yeah, and then you like start picking it up again, you would actually be able to learn that language a lot faster the second time because cool. you had already learned it once. Yep. And so that's that's essentially what they refer to when they talk about relearning. So it's not just this um, recognition, recall, and relearning. As I said, it's kind of ongoing. It's as long as you can continue to function um, in your day-to-day life and you can continue to interact with your ongoing circumstances, memory is just implicitly involved in all of that. Okay? Yeah. But then there's also like we do these things where we don't we don't necessarily talk about them. And what's one interesting thing about this idea of memory is at least for humans seems to be explicitly related to our ability to talk about it. Yeah. Which is really interesting because if you take something like, and this would be for a really good for a topic you're going to talk about later on yeah. about uh, your experience doing research with animals. Yeah. But if you work with an animal and then you, you, are training them to do something. Let's say you're teaching a dog to sit. Mm-hmm. And then the next time you tell it to sit, the next day you say sit, and it does right away. And then you might say they remembered that command. Yep. Circular reasoning, your only evidence is that they did it. But yeah. either way, <laughs> um, the fact of the matter is that that cue of sit, it, it made the, it caused the same reaction that it did when it was learned. And mm-hmm. so that seems to be this remembering thing. But if you were to, do something like this with a person mm-hmm. and then you maybe ask them, you maybe teach them how to do something. Like I'm going to teach you how to sew. Yeah. And then, then a week later I'm like, Hey, do you remember how to sew? And you're trying to describe it, but you can't remember all the steps, but I give you something and you actually sew it together. Sometimes people will say, they don't really remember how they do it, but they could actually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually really common when talking about research with people who have um, Alzheimer's and mm-hmm. or various types of amnesia. They'll learn. They'll actually continue to learn, um, but they won't be able to say that they remember learning it. Yeah. And so there's something different that's going on when we are thinking about people and their verbal behavior mm-hmm. about their memory and their actual actions about their memory. Yeah. Um, that, Whereas we don't do that, right, with non-human yeah. animals. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and although it, sometimes probably people do look at – well, they can't say that they remember, but they're doing it, so clearly they do. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's tricky, man. Memory is a, it's a tricky thing. So anyway, 
there seems to be an element of this that is really, really wrapped up in language and verbal behavior mm -hmm. about memory. And then there's also an element of it that's just action because there are going to be things that you don't have to articulate what they are. But as long as you can do them correctly, then we'll say that you, quote unquote, remembered it. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Oh, man, I feel like we've already <laughs> unpacked so much. Okay, so there were some uh, specific elements of memory that I was thinking would be useful to discuss. Just a laundry list, right? Yeah. And so I guess we can maybe just go through them and just kind of break them up one at a time. Yeah. Uh, you can sort of tell me which ones you want to take. Uh, so first I was going to talk about explicit and implicit. Do you want to take those or do you want me to do that? You go for it. Okay. So explicit just refers to, and actually this is exactly what I was just saying. Yeah. Explicit are these memories where they, um, you can directly interact with that memory. You can talk about it. You can do it. And implicit memories are instead the ones that um, you don't necessarily actively think about, but they are still things that you can mm -hmm. react to appropriately later. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think that's good for that. Let's move on to the yeah. next one. So then we have long-term, short-term, and sensory memory, right? Yeah. Now, I don't recall where the lines are kind of at, and I remember them being taught differently. Yeah. So long-term starts and ends here. Short-term right. starts and ends here. Um, what, what, what are those at? Do you know? Um, it's, there's not total agreement on this, um, but, and sensory, I want to end on sensory memory because that's going to lead into the next topic. Cool. Uh, but short-term memory looks like it can be anywhere from a few seconds to a few minutes, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. Like we're talking maybe five minutes at most, um, for the most part with short-term memory. Um, and after that it starts getting in, well, I'm going to use the metaphor encoded into mm -hmm. long-term memory. And so long-term memory refers to this idea that you can either do the recognition, recall, or relearning after a significantly longer period of time than that short-term memory. Yeah. Okay. So that's essentially where those are at, but even those numbers, not everyone really agrees on. And the thing is, like, there seems to be a considerable amount of overlap when you get to the, like, longer end of short-term. Mm -hmm. So it's like, there might be short-term, someone might remember something as long as 10 minutes, but after that, it's totally gone. Yeah. Even though that doesn't really fit the normal paradigm of what we think about with short-term memory. Um, or someone might... Um, remember something for you know an even longer period of time but then after that it's gone mm -hmm. and so there you know it's just this idea that memory is processed immediately it is stored for temporarily and then mm -hmm. if it's important enough and important is actually the totally wrong word here because importance like even personal value has like virtually nothing to do with whether or not it will be recalled yeah. later yeah. Um, but if there is enough if the cues are strong enough yeah that's a better way to think about it. If the yeah. cues are strong enough, then it will be in this long-term memory thing. Mm -hmm. So then let's get into this idea of um, sensory memory just to move on with yeah, this. Yeah. There's so much. So tell us about sensory memory. Okay. So basically, um, as we've talked about, the brain is sort of just always going. Mm -hmm. it's, it's always active. Our whole body is always integrated with itself. And what that means is we are constantly processing auditory um, we're also we're processing noises through our ears. We're processing um, visual experiences through our eyes, smells, mm -hmm. taste, feel. All those things are kind of constantly going on. And so as those are going on, they're immediately being processed in the relevant context. And again, this comes to like if you were in a cold environment, but you kept forgetting it was cold because yeah. you couldn't – like your senses was not um, continually being updated um, or you weren't able to react to that as an yeah. ongoing process – it'd be 
you would not live very long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And so this idea that our, our brain is just constantly working and our bodies are constantly, and again, like I'm saying my brain, but as I just mentioned, like I need my eyeballs, I need my yeah, ears, yeah, I need yeah, my skin. Yeah. All of these things are related to this. It all comes together. Yeah, it all comes together. And so all those things are working and this is um, a type of memory where we're constantly engaged with that experience and can react to that experience appropriately. And this same idea is related to working memory. So what's your um, what's your, your memory, if you will, of working of memory? Working memory? Yeah. Is uh, your memory working? I just <laughs> I just remember it being like kind of like the the amount or the capacity you had in the moment to kind of be handling the various cues around there. Yeah, that's basically yeah. yeah, I think <clears throat> that that's totally appropriate. Um, it's like if you're reading a book, then you are constantly every word that you read is being put in the context of the overall story. Yeah. And so this, you know, as you are, I'm going to speak a little bit loosely here, but as you're predicting what's going to happen, as you're, you're recognizing these events that are taking place and connecting them with past events that have Mm -hmm. taken place as the characters and their stories are relevant to what's going on. All of that is this working memory process of like, if you if you didn't relating everything yeah, to each other yeah it's creating this big relational experience where all of these experience or all these um, cues are coming together to form like a big story mm-hmm. okay so they all sort of fit together and it, again it's coming back to this idea of um, you know if there was no working memory it would be impossible for us to stick to any one task long enough to remember yeah <laughs> we get yeah. no enjoyment out of stories because <laughs> every moment of the story would be brand new like we wouldn't have any idea when yeah. to that you know to that extent we wouldn't be able to write stories either. Um, but this whole idea of working memory is just a description of the fact that we are continuously engaged in the moment with a whole bunch of different cues, as yeah. kind of you just said. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the brain... kind of what we talk about a lot here, right? It's like the idea is that we're kind of always in this ongoing interaction yeah. with our history exactly. and what's kind of currently happening around us in the context of like a fully functioning biological... Blah blah blah. You know, yeah. add whatever else <laughs> you want to add. Like add whatever else you want in there. Right. Uh, living human. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's just it's always ongoing and it's always totally interactive, and that's what I like about the sensory part is that it's not just that our brains are constantly processing things; it's that we are constantly interacting with the cues and the sensations that are in our current environment. Mm-hmm. And if you are, for example, in an MRI machine, those cues are very different than if you're yeah. not. But Totally different episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, it's useful probably to bring in just a little bit, and we're not going to go into a whole lot of depth about this, but the the part of the brain that is primarily identified as being responsible for memory processing. Mm-hmm. And so what's your history with this? I just remember it's the hippocampus. Yeah. That's it. Okay. <laughs> That's all I know. All right. So. And it's like back. Yeah, it's sort of down and the lower, middle, like underneath, right? yeah. Yeah. If you were to like cut open someone's head and dig right down about the middle-ish toward the back, yeah. sort of near the brainstem area, so yeah. you're basically punching straight through the top of this thing and going yeah. in toward the brainstem, you're going to run into this weird-shaped object um, that almost looks like the, the head of the alien from Aliens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's two of them, there's like two of them together. Anyway, um, and that is this hippocampus. Like a cashew, is that right? Uh, uh, you're actually you're thinking of walnut, and okay. it's a different walnut. structure. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, no, actually, no. Take it back. It is shaped like a cashew. No, that's a good. That's a good description. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, I was thinking, anyway. All right. So um, no, yeah, it is sort of shaped like a cashew, and uh, this area of the brain seems to be um, 
critical for processing memories. Yeah. But it's really important to point out this is not where memories are stored. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, memories aren't really stored anywhere yeah. in a sense, as research has shown. But um, everything, the sense processes, they go through a lot of filters in the brain. Mm-hmm. But eventually they end up, eventually, within a milliseconds, they end up at the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is sort of this regulating center where these, stim- these sensations, or these experiences, connect to other parts of the brain. And if there's enough cues, then those connections will be strong enough that you'll be able to come back to those connections. Mm-hmm. That's basically the idea. And um, what's interesting about this, and one of the reasons we know this, is because there have been instances where people who have had severe damage to their hippocampus can no longer um, form those long-term memories. Yeah. And so what it is, is they'll process this working memory will continue to go, but they can only remember a few minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. And then every few minutes, it's like they're just waking up. Yeah. And there's some really sad stories that we don't have time to get into. Yeah. But it's, it's an interesting process. But another interesting thing to point out about the hippocampus is it's not there, – there are other things that are going on in the memory process. Mm-hmm. And one way that we know that is that if there are lesions or damage done to the hippocampus, respondent conditioning can still take place. Mm-hmm. So um, if you, for example, have a rat and you severe, if you damage its hippocampus to the point where it's not doing very much mm-hmm. or de- destroy it for the most part altogether – well, you can't really destroy it. Ruin the brain, but if you damage it enough that it's not doing what it normally does, you can still get these reflex conditions. Where and this is going back. Did, I don't know, did we mention Pavlov before? Uh, we have not. Okay. Um, let's just let's. Yeah, so, we, we can probably just get around to just like kind of talking about the primitive. Things. Oh yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Okay. So these primitive reflexes, these things that you do automatically um, to certain cues, um, even if you damage the hippocampus. If you form that association between some cue and a, like a reflex, you, your, your brain will still process that. You'll be, still be able to do that same reflex later, even yeah. though you didn't have the hippocampus really involved. So I think that's all we okay. need to cover for the brain part. Nice. Yeah. There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot. Um, so, yeah, like we said, we have a laundry list of things related to memory. Yeah. And there's a lot more to go. Yeah. Well, I'll go, I'll go through the next few really quickly. Okay. Um, so are you familiar with the serial position effect? Um, no, I can try to break it down as a result of those, but maybe you can just jump straight into it. Let's, and actually let's do this via a quick, uh, sort of experiment. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a list and I'm going to read it out loud so that our, um, our listeners can hear it as well. Okay. And then see if you remember it a few minutes later. So I'm looking at it. Should we be looking at it? Uh, you can if you want to. Okay. All right. So list goes, there's two lists. The first one goes ship, honey, aggravate, friends, Spell implicated. Okay? All right. Okay. Go ahead and say it out loud once just to... Ship, honey, ag- aggravate, friends, spell implicated. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to do the other list because that one's a whole different topic. But um, Okay, so we're going to come back to that list and see what you remember. Okay. Um, this is, and there'll be an example of the serial position effect. Okay, so the next one I'm going to talk about is the spider web metaphor. Okay. Um, and have you heard this one before? Uh, no. Okay. Well, a little bit, just like the kind of... Uh, there's a lot of things connected to each other. Yeah. There's some very much like uh, I talk about relating. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the spiderweb metaphor, it, uh, the description of it is this idea that memories are held in a web of associations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just kind of silly, but it's, it's fun. Yeah. Um, and it actually kind of makes sense. And uh, they'll talk about in this metaphor that if you follow like 
if you're engaged in one particular memory and you'll reach like an anchor point on a spider web where mm-hmm. the lines cross, you might then continue on down the memory or you might remember something else and go down a different path. Yeah. And so it's sort of just referring to this idea that memory is linked together. And yeah. so you can you might go off in these various directions as you're remembering things. Perhaps um, they have different cues or the ex- same cues. Exactly right? right, yeah. This kind of idea. Yeah, so you might be creating these cues as you go yeah. when you're doing this. Okay. Um, and then uh, this, oh, this one's kind of fun. Yeah. The context-dependent and state-dependent memories. Yeah, <laughs> no, these ones are fun. Yeah. All right, so the context-dependent memories, I'm not as familiar with, mm-hmm. um, but I do know that it's a uh, context thing I'm very into and I like. I think it could be used. It's a good word to mm-hmm. describe, like, there's other things going on around you or the situation that you're in, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, so it can be either a dumping ground <laughs> and everyone just kind of says it's context, it's context, or you right. can actually use it right. to try to kind of understand things. So for me, um, it seems like that is trying to remember in a specific area of the house, maybe, or a specific situation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I like to give the example of if you're ever like in your room and you think, oh, I need to go get this from the other room, and then you walk out of your room and you get there and you're like, why am I standing? Yeah. What was I doing here? I can't remember. And then you go back to the room, and as soon as you get there, you're like, oh, I remember now. Or you might even be a little, you know, close. Maybe yeah. you can see it. And so the idea is that the memory was formed in that particular context, so you have to be in that context again in order to recall yeah. what it was. Um, and that, especially if you weren't, you know, again, speaking loosely, paying close attention, yeah. once you walked out of that environment and you're thinking about other things, you're now in a different context – um, the cues for that memory are missing. Yeah. So you just need to go back to where those cues yeah. were. So, and, okay, yeah. So my understanding is it's kind of similar to the idea in state-dependent learning, which is our next one. Yeah. Um, however, that kind of brings in, like, this biological, chemical kind of component, right? Yeah. Usually? Yeah. <laughs> and so not breaking down, like, the exact chemical process that takes place. Yeah. But this idea that when you're in a particular state, you're more likely to remember things that happen in that state when you are in that state again in the future. Yeah. And that's why it's dependent on that state. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. The, um, so where I guess some of the studies I've seen in the past have been around different drug use, right? Yeah. I don't know. Alcohol is common. Alcohol. Yeah. So it's like at a certain... <laughs> I'm sure with today's political landscape that uh, marijuana is probably something oh, you're yeah. picking up more often. Probably. <laughs> Um, this, if you are at some level of inebriation and not the one where you're not going to remember anything. Yeah. Um, but then when you are again at that level of inebriation, you are slightly more likely to remember something that happened when you were that drunk in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're dr- that drunk again in the future. Um, and that's this idea of state dependent, but this is also relevant to like if a certain level of tiredness or, mm-hmm. um, other type of experiences you might have related to sort of your physiology, your physiology yeah. at the time. Okay. Um, but I always want to preface, or I want to give the, the uh, caveat to this of like, if you're trying to study for a test, yeah. getting drunk while studying is not <laughs> really a good idea yeah. to like help you remember and then show up drunk to the test. Yeah. Uh, not ideal. Yeah, um, no. From everything I remember reading, um, you were always best on the, the sober sober. Right. Study sober, test sober. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but it also comes back to this idea of these, um, the context dependent because uh, there are recommendations and actually some decent research to suggest that if you study in the exact place you're going to be taking the test, you're more likely to remember what you studied. Yeah. Although you might also argue that you're, you learn the material better if you can generalize it to different settings. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to advocate one way or the other. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, we've covered a lot of the elements of this. And so the last thing we touch on before we get into sort of some of the critical analytic portion of this will be just to answer the question that some people have um, or maybe misinformation people have about like how much can you really remember? Yeah. So what is the limit on how much you can remember? Uh, sometime, somewhere around seven things, yeah. right? Yeah. So most people, when they do this, this memory research, they found that people can remember uh, on average about seven things. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of ways to modify that. I'll get to that in a second. But the overall capacity of what you can remember is literally limitless. Um, (laughs) We have found no upper limit on how much someone can actually remember. And part of that is because of where it's quote unquote stored, which actually I'm talking about. I'll do that after this. Yeah. And so I guess just to really highlight the fact that I think people may have this idea that there's a really a limit on like how much you can remember. And so they're like, oh, don't fill your head with this because then you won't be able to remember this. Yeah. Totally not the case. Um, it seems as far as we can tell that you can remember as mu- an infinite amount of information. That being said, it might be difficult to have an infinite number of cues. Yeah. Which we're about to get to. But before we do that, I'm going to talk about if you can improve your memory. Okay. So... What's the simple answer? Can you improve it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's the simple answer. How? Well, there's a few different strategies that people have talked about. Um, have you heard of chunking? Um, I do I do not know chunking. Okay. Chunking is just the idea that you can group bits of information into larger groups. Because it's sort okay. of like, you know, there's no minimum size of a piece of information. Okay. You wouldn't remember someone's name based on the cluster of letters. You're going to remember it as a whole unit, as a name. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of people remember, like, I know it was like a S or an er, or, you know. So, yeah. So, I guess to clarify, like, if I had different um, things that I kind of categorized that I tried to remember together, mm-hmm. they seemed like they were relevant. Exactly. Is that chunking? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and so, so then, sorry, I took the bike. I do that all the time when no, I'm yeah. setting and remembering. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the general recommended strategy is the larger a unit you can group things into, then you end up just remembering that unit and not the individual pieces of that unit. So, Again, thinking about remembering someone's phone number. If yeah. you remember the first three digits not as like 762, but 762, mm-hmm. or have that be relevant of in the year 19 or 1762, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, I don't know, mm-hmm. um, then uh, having that be its own unit is a lot easier than remembering the whole string of seven digits. Yeah. And so there's a lot, you can remember a lot more if you remember things in chunks as opposed to little tiny bits. Yeah. Cool. So that's one way. Yes. Next, next way is mnemonics. Yeah. Right? Called mnemonic device. Yeah. Um, so with those, my understanding was I uh, kind of create some sort of usually an acronym. Yeah? Uh, you, you can, can use acronyms. Sort of things? There are other ways to do it too. What are the other ways? Um, this is when I run into the most. Well, you can think of a mnemonic device. <laughs> you ever watch The Office? I actually don't. Okay. I'm, like, I'm a weird, I'm like, I don't do a lot of pop culture stuff i guess like that except like, all the social media <laughs> uh, yeah i'm like all the social media uh, yeah i just don't understand like half of the references and gifts i guess okay <laughs> okay um so the in the office uh, one of the main characters michael scott he remembers people's names by remembering like really stereotyped characteristics okay. so he's trying to think of this one guy's name and he's like um job of the hut job of the hut was fat uh job uh, pizza hut Fat people like pizza, uh, pepperoni on pizza, pepperoni Tony. His name was Tony. Yeah. So basically what it was, he was creating – I said that totally wrong. But um, the idea was that 
he was creating a bunch of different relations to have to remember his name. Now, this isn't going to work. That particular version yeah. of it won't work for most people. But um, the like one technique I use that's a, a mnemonic device when I'm learning a new vocab word is I try and associate that word with someone that I know and that has a characteristic. Okay. Like I think of the word erudite, um, which refers to someone who's very intelligent. And so then I'll think of like a professor that I had who was very yeah. intelligent. And now like, oh, that person was an erudite. Um, and then I, when I think of the word erudite, then I can remember it just because I created that device of um, some – I gave it more meaning basically. Yeah. Kind of related it to other things. Yeah. Right? Yeah, basically. So I gave it another cue mm-hmm. when I come to. Yeah. Uh, one of the last ways that people will talk about memory is this idea of spaced practice mm-hmm. um, where it's – Basically, I mean, the overall lesson to take away from, like, can you improve memory is that practicing remembering things will get you better at remembering things. Yeah. Um, like many of the things that you do. Yeah. Um, oh, and I have a really fun story I forgot to put in here. I'll talk about this after this. Um, so, but if you practice in a spaced way, um, what they found is that if you practice it on one day and you practice it the next day and then you practice it a third day, and you're doing it like every day, and then you actually break it up, and then you might be two days. If you space out those practices, it's more likely that those cues will be stronger than if you try to do it all in one sitting. Yeah. And so this is not to say that study for 30 seconds and read a word and then go yeah. read another word the next day. It'd be like practice all of it or the, you know, the major relevant features yeah. of it and then practice the same relevant features again. And then keep doing this spaced repetition. And you can extend out how much space there is. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if you space them out and you do these in these regular chunks and then you make those chunks lar- longer and longer, um, then you'll um, people actually tend to remember a lot more when they practice that way. Yeah, so when I had flashcards in grad school, I used to, after work, um, sit down, practice my vocab words. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had a system of I would practice my uh, words that I'd already learned. Um, but not until after I'd practiced at least once on my new deck. Okay. I'd learn. Yeah. And then I'd come back to that new deck afterwards. Nice. Um, and I would do that every day. And then at the end of the week, I'd also do something that was a little bit different, kind of like recalling my past classes. Oh, nice. And then I'd keep that throughout a whole semester. So I kind of like layered three or four different ways to kind of like space those out. Does that all count? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you were like sort of unknowingly doing best practice memory yeah, um, or maybe you knew, and I don't it's, know. well, it's because it worked. Uh, I actually didn't know. I knew that working on it daily was important, mm-hmm. and then, then I realized like the practical limitations. That I couldn't work on all of my cards daily. Sure. All of a sudden, so I started getting like thousands of cards. So that's where I was just like, "Well, I'll see what happens when I come back to these once a week." Nice. I'll see what happens when I come back to these once a month. Nice. Um, what was cool, cool is the data would kind of tell you individually, like if you remember it or not. So, yeah. Were those cues actually holding over time? That's great. Just kind of one of our themes that we kind of run through here, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's very much so. Yeah. So um, there was this one other story I was going to talk about with um, the uh, both the mnemonic device, and it's actually all related to all of these things. But specifically, there was the study that was done with uh, these cab drivers in London. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the streets of London, it looks like a drunk spider sort of wandered around in random patterns and made the like most ridiculous looking web you've ever seen. Yeah. And because um, they're just sprawled out everywhere okay. um, in downtown London. Because it, it used to be just like cart paths that eventually yeah. turned into streets. It's and like so Boston. <laughs> As I understand it. Yeah. yeah. I've never been there. But... I heard it was more confusing. Okay. Um, but I don't know. I haven't been to London. 
So uh, cab drivers there, they have to memorize all the streets down there before they can really drive. And they call this the knowledge. Okay. And so, but what they found is that the longer that people drove this, um, the more enlarged their posterior hippocampus was when, yeah, when they did these uh, uh, autopsies after they died. And so what was happening is as like other things we've talked about with the brain, as you use it, it, it builds and constructs those connections and makes them stronger and more robust Mm -hmm. um, on the brain. And so, and they found a direct correlation. So they could have just been, you know, there was the argument that maybe these people who had large posterior hippocampi were, or hippocampuses, I don't know what the correct plural is, uh, were likely to become cab drivers, which is kind of a silly conclusion, but it's possible. (laughs) Um, uh, But no, there was a direct correlation between number of years of experience and the actual uh, amount of enlargement of the posterior hippocampus, which really indicated that um, they... Uh, again, the central role the brain plays is this, con- this constant interactive process, yeah. and the experience actually shaped the brain itself, yeah. um, which was kind of an interesting uh, thing. Yeah. So yeah, this cool idea of, of uh, and so they they had this this capacity for remembering all these streets, but it was so easy for them yeah. because it was chunked into this big unit, yeah. and also because they had repeated practice that was spaced, and it, yeah. all of the basically everything was brought to bear on this. Yeah, I guess like theoretically, like they didn't catch me by surprise but like the fact that the data is kind of out there yeah that's what was kind of cool about yeah there's legit data it's pretty cool nice all right and then one more um and this is getting into where we're going to really start to talk about what i think what we're going to end on for the most part Mm -hmm. is um there was this really interesting experiment this guy did with memory um his name is george sperling and what he did is he put a three by three block of letters so it was nine letters Mm -hmm. um, on a screen and he flashed it for like a tenth of a second or maybe a twentieth of a second really Mm -hmm. fast and then he'd ask people to recall as many letters as they could. And as you can imagine, that fast, people weren't very good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what he did was he uh, he had a tone that he associated with a top line, a middle line, and a bottom line. Okay. And when he played the tone with the uh, when the image flashed after he just made that association, um, people could recall with 100% accuracy the letters that were associated with the line for which he played the tone. Yeah. And so what was interesting about that was that although they were novel letters – and they had no experience with them, Mm -hmm. what he did was he created an additional cue that was then linked to a particular set of letters. Kind of supplemental cue. Exactly right. Yeah, the supplemental cue, and that they were then able to improve their memory significantly from almost none at all or guessing, you know, Mm -hmm. chance levels, to to perfect uh, recollection. Nice. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of cool. cool. All right. So all that comes to... We now need to break down how we can talk about studying and understanding memory and their memory process. And um, when I've taught this, I sort of talk about it in three different ways. Okay. Because you can talk about the biological aspects of it. Mm-hmm. And we've already talked about the uh, hippocampus and uh, the role of the other brain. Oh, which I wanted to come back to this. In terms of memory storage, because probably a lot of people are wondering, there just isn't like a location. Yeah. They're really stored in the connections throughout the brain, wherever relevant experiences have been a part of the brain's activity. Okay. That's yeah. basically it. Kind of makes sense for brain, brain plasticity and such. It does. Right? And also, when you come to this idea of the fact that there's like context dependent, for example, mm-hmm. of like what parts of the brain were active when yeah. you're engaged in a particular task in a particular location, and when those cues are there, mm-hmm. and then the same brain activity is there, like that's where that that connection existed last time, it's more likely mm-hmm. that connection is going to be there again. So um, that's 
uh, one relevant way of talking about um, the storage. But anyway, so you can talk about memory from this biological change, and that's by looking at the um, by like the hippocampus and what's going on in the brain. But there's kind of a limitation to that. Yeah. And the major limitation, if uh, you know, there's a lot, but is that we can't do a whole lot to like manipulate the brain and then see how that affects memory. Yeah. Like I doubt you're going to be like, yeah, just like stick a needle in my eye, poke yeah. me in the hippocampus, inject it with something. Yeah. See how that affects yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, we can do it with some drugs and everything, but there's there's not a lot we can do to change it, and so it's hard to understand, you know, how we can manipulate the biology so that we can study this thing. Um, and before I go on to the second one, I'm gonna go back to the serial position effect. So, okay. what was the list I gave you? Uh, I remember aggregate and honey. Okay. But I distinctly remember. Uh, it's funny. I'm thinking about everything we just talked about this episode. <laughs> distinctly remember. It's actually just verbal behavior. Um, <laughs> that I was like practicing, like kind of on my own, mm-hmm. like covertly. And okay. Then I stopped after like 30 seconds. Okay. And then it was about. I looked at the clock. It was about ten or twelve minutes later, and I was just like, "Oh man, I haven't <laughs> thought about that for a while." Oh yeah. So that's where I'm at. Okay. <laughs> I remember two of them, um, and I'm pretty sure in the middle. Uh, actually, no, and that's the whole thing about the serial position effect. That's so interesting ah. is that most people, when they're remembering a list, are going to remember the very beginning of the list and or the very end of the list, but usually we'll forget the middle. So, and you got the you got two and three yeah. out of the seven. Um, but so it would have been cool if it would have demonstrated my point better if you remember the last one or the very first one. Uh, but that did sort of demonstrate the point that you remember the ones that were sort of up front. Um, and that's often, uh, it's just a common effect of the serial position is where people are more likely to remember the beginning and end of a list than they are the stuff in the middle. So, and yes, everybody who is an naysayer out there, there are counter examples of this, but it's the general (laughs) tendency uh, that people do this. So, okay. Um, I want to get back to where we were. Uh, we were talking about how we can sort of measure and understand memory. And um, yeah. uh, so I talked about the biological changes. The other one we can look at is the behavioral response. But what, I mean, what do you think? Um, and so the behavioral response is looking at when we talked about when you say it. So you are talking to me about something you remember yep. or demonstrating verbally that you remember it. Um, or you can actually do it. Yeah, you're kind of demonstrating it, right? Yeah. Whatever that is. So what, in your opinion, would be some advantages of that? Uh, for me, you can actually see if memory happened. Yeah. Right? Like, absolutely. That's the biggest thing. I should be able to watch it directly. Right. right. So, so if you're saying, like, I remember where it is, like, you can demonstrate, like, by going and finding what it is. Right? Sure. Lost the keys. Uh, I remember where they're at. Show me the keys. Here are the keys. Right. Boom. Done. Right? Simple. Yeah. And most of the... Very practical and useful, I guess. Exactly. So if I had to teach it or if I had to, like, measure it. Mm-hmm. Okay. The behavioral response is a lot easier. Yeah, um, the, it's easy to access, and you can maybe manipulate it a little bit too. Of you know, forcing a particular action to occur, or maybe preventing it from, an action from occurring. Yeah. Or you know, you can you can do a little bit more with control, and it's certainly a lot more objective. Mm-hmm. And now a lot of people will try and do both the biological and the behavioral together. Be like, mm-hmm. well, let's look what happens at the biological level when we change the behavior, or look at what's happening in the behavior. Yeah. Um, but you know, there are a little limitations because if you change the behavior, then you're also kind of changing what the context was in which that memory is formed in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so again, it's just a little bit of a limitation. So the, the last one I like to talk about is this idea of cues the, or like the memory cues in the environment. And I really like this approach to studying memory because we can completely change the cues. We can mm-hmm. remove them. We can 
so we can supplement them, we can add to them, we can change them a little bit, and then we can look at this effect of the cues on the behavior or the memory that we're interested in, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. There are lots of advantages to this um, use of looking at cues, and the more cues you have and the more variety of the cues, the stronger the memory. Okay. And by this, uh, have, you've heard this like metaphor for strength. Uh, how do how do people usually use that metaphor for strength? Yeah, uh, like just, what is it, what is a strong memory? How would you know it was strong, or why would you describe it as being strong? Very easy to do those three things you talked about: recall, okay. relearn, all that sort of stuff, right? Sure. So, yeah, yeah a lot. Of, we, the metaphor of like it being a strong memory is like the likelihood that it will occur. Yeah. Um, how quickly? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. How quickly how it occurs? Strong. How how often it occurs? Yeah. All those sort of are uh, indicators of. What we mean with strength that come with it and all that, right? Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's this this idea of strength, and so when we supplement those cues by adding more features, mm -hmm. coming back to this idea of sensory memory, if you take a visual cue and you add an auditory component, like George Sperling did, mm -hmm. or you add a olfactory component, like a smell or yeah. a taste or touch, or all of those things together. They, every one of them strengthens that cue significantly with respect to a memory. Yeah, okay? kind of like that spider web you talked about. Uh, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. You, build, you build in a whole bunch of anchors right next to each yeah. other. Like they're, this is a big knot, knot of web. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. all knotted together. Okay, so some useful ways of looking at this idea of cues. Well, let's actually come back to that because I think it's time now to maybe do a little bit more of a critical look at memory and how people have talked about it in the past. I'm going to let you sort of take the reins on this one. Looking at this critically um, kind of goes back to the beginning of the episode. So we were talking about like um, historically people have kind of given like entities or like something like the brain maybe so like more power as to like where these memories occur. Um, and I think if you want to look really critically at it, um, there's a few things to look at. Like we've already touched on this, but there's not really like a, a pure memory trace or where something's happening, right? Um, it's all contextual, right? Or sensory, or like all these things, these cues kind of like s are individually kind of built together in those webs or whatever it is that you kind of liked, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, the other issue uh, that's really comes down to this idea of like memory being in a certain place is like that doesn't help me, right? At all. Right. Um, it's not really useful. Like, it's not useful to the individual. Which is probably why you're listening to this, at least initially, um, <laughs> or you know, to some extent. Um, just because you can't subscribe, probably. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Hopefully. <laughs> and then I think the biggest issue there is like anytime we put something into only one area, so we're saying there's this one thing that's very important with memory. Mm -hmm. um, for example, call it the brain, call it whatever it is mm -hmm. that you want to put into. Um, and we put in all of our, our, our eggs into one basket like that. Um, there's, I think, a big risk in actually advancing what you're understanding. Like, you should always be looking to other memories. Okay. Right? So you're uh, saying that, like, you wouldn't just focus on the cues, just focus on the behavior, or just focus on the brain. Yeah. So your three things, your biology, your behavior that you talked about, or responses that people are doing. Right. Um, as well as the cues. Like, it's all of those things coming together. Okay. So um, kind of gets into this thing we kind of hit more or less uh, on this podcast is... It's not this kind of um, one, it's not this like one thing happens and the next thing happens and the next thing happens. Um, it's all happening together, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, memory is happening as all of these things come together. Mm -hmm. are, we, are we cool saying that? I, I think so. 
Okay. I am. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess some ways that have been uh, for me to try to understand like what to do with that if we're going to be really critical with it is like the best thing that I've found so far is talking about how we were saying you can uh, kind of look at this two ways, like these cues over time mm-hmm. um, and how they kind of hold up, which I have a, a pretty cool example for. So let's take when I was in graduate school, I was working at a place, uh, I was at Florida Institute of Technology, I worked at the Fish Lab. Oh, right. And was the, a good story. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just kind of quickly, the Fish Lab was, was there for uh, students to learn how to work with animals in an experimental setting, mm-hmm. but it was a little bit different in that. Uh, I guess the the subjects were selected because they were a little bit easier to start up a new lab. It was a fresh lab that kind of started up. The fish, uh, you mean? Yeah, the fish okay. is like the subjects that we were working with. And and so this is uh, behavioral psycho- psychology research. Yeah, thing. behavioral psychology research. Yeah, okay. so like the the setup was fish and some home tanks where they all lived. Everything was kind of kept very like we everything was watched very. I don't want to go into details too much. Everything sure. was. Watch very closely water levels, email alerts, all that sort of stuff, okay. um, if anything was wrong. But what we'd do is we'd bring them into a tank where we would train them, mm-hmm. and there was a hoop that was set up. There was an infrared hoop. Um, you teach them to go through that yeah. uh, by delivering food as the, the reinforcer. Okay. And as a result of them going through that with it being infrared, the infrared would allow the computer to track um, whether or not they're actually swimming through, and you could automate things. Cool. So it was, could you teach a fish how to do this sort of thing? So... Um, one of the common things that pops up, probably know, it's like, what's the average uh, for supposed memory length of a goldfish? It's like three seconds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it can vary, but most people actually say, like, actually, a lot of people that I've run into actually can answer that question. Like, the length yeah. of a memory of a goldfish. For I some reason, we, we all know that. It's just a cultural thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there's even a saying that's like, has the memory of a goldfish. Oh, yes, yes, so, yes. To, yes, like, yes. refer to yes. someone who has very, yeah. forgets things easily. Yeah, so one thing that was kind of fun is we got to look at these sort of things. Um, so when we were talking about, like, it's the cues over the time, mm-hmm. right? Like, how long, how, how strong are these cues um, necessarily? Right. Um, presumably, with a goldfish, it's three seconds. Okay. So, basically, after they swim through the hoop, if it's been three seconds, then they should have totally forgotten how to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that forgotten gets us into a whole different podcast. Right? That's true. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, at least they don't have the memory of it, which is actually a, a funny little kink in the story. Because it's not going to sleep. Okay. Well, I'll finish the story. We'll see how it relates. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, how we would look at it, at least with memory, it was... How long could they go about uh, remembering to go back through that hoop when we place them back in that tank? Okay. So there'd be a training session. We take them out, say a day later, put them back in. Do they remember to go through the hoop? Okay. Um, how to do it? Um, at least the the furthest that I personally pushed that to myself um, was around the four to five month range. Okay. Um, as which like I could train up a fish to swim through the hoop, not place them in for four to five months. Put them in, start everything up again, and they'd go back through. Whoa! Right, that's a Kinda long different. time. Yeah, for way, way, way for longer than the uh, the three seconds. I remember the goldfish would be a compliment. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the goldfish means you can like hold on to that. Yeah. Um, so hold on, if you put because I don't, I don't actually know this part. If you put a, a goldfish in the tank, did you try it like with no train whatsoever? It, would they just swim through the the hoop on their own? Um, I we so I kind of measured that. I didn't look okay. that much. Um, okay. It just like wouldn't happen. Okay. Okay. So it if you put them in the top, okay. it had to be taught. So they're not just swimming through hoops just because it's fun. No, it had to be taught. Okay. I, I guess what I'm hesitating is like I only watched for so long. Like I'm yeah. not going to sit there and watch and see if it shapes up over months or 
whatnot. But, right. Yeah. Like, but if you put I a, had no evidence of just putting a fish in and they start swimming through. But when you waited the four to five months, four to five, not 45. Yeah. <laughs> four to five months, a long time. They probably don't even live that long. If you waited four to five months and put them in there, then pretty quickly they start going through the hoop again? Yeah. No, yeah. Like, it, it was a matter of... Uh, I don't know, thirty seconds to a minute and a half. Whoa! What okay. I recall. Like, so clearly yeah. demonstrating. Yeah, a, no, like, it was very. Response. Yeah, it was very quick. That's awesome. Yeah, very quick. Um, yeah, we'll have to bring that back up when we talk about uh, forgetting, because I don't know if it, how it relates to forgetting or memory. It's kind of blurry, I guess, as I think about. It. But oh, we can um, we can tie it. It'll yeah, all tie so back around. Yeah, so this kind of approach, I guess, to what I've like led to is understanding that it's uh, these cues over time. That's kind of a way that I've looked at those cues over time. Okay. Whether you bring the, like you as. Uh, Anyone who's looking to influence or teach in those sort of situations, like you can um, sometimes like uh, manipulate those sort of things, right? Sure. Um, and that was useful for me. Um, nice. Now, the other way I've kind of looked at it is uh, we've talked about it in different ways, um, but it's how different things relate to each other, I guess. Right. Um, this idea of how one thing can kind of remind you of another. So like right? represents it? Yeah. So kind it's, of represents it. Do you have it's any, a substitute. Yeah. Do you have any? Yeah. So it kind of substitutes in place of it. Um, so I don't know if I have a good example of this. Do you have anything that kind of comes to mind? Um, I think I could, I could probably come up with many. So I think the the, mo- the the example I turn to immediately is thinking about when you have lost a loved one. Mm-hmm. And then um, maybe, let's say it's like your parents, yeah. or like maybe one of your parents, or, um, and you return to the house. So like, let's say you're an adult, you moved out of your house and your your dad passed away or something, and then you go back to the house and you have like all of these memories that start flooding back. Yeah. And it's because the context of that house, the chair where you used to sit and like their mm-hmm. bedroom and like all these places where you had interactions, they all um, have a little bit – they can substitute for the cue of your dad. Yeah. And so they can, uh, I guess, cause the same memory you would have mm-hmm. as if – you know, you were there with him, if your dad was there. Yeah. Um, and so the, that, that's the one that I'm sort of thinking of immediately. And especially because I think a lot of people have this experience immediately after losing um, a loved one or like a, you know, a loved pet yeah. person um, where they will have a lot of memories where the cues are not the pet itself, but mm-hmm. the things that were immediately relevant when that memory was formed with the yeah. pet. Does yeah. that sound yeah. about right? No, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a great example. So, yeah, I guess that's, uh, I guess some of the critical eye, but like how to still use these sort of things Mm -hmm. that I've kind of come to develop and love, um, kind of come from the behavioral psychology area. Right. Yeah. I don't know what else we got to hit in this. Uh, just a couple of quick things. Yeah, no, I think, I think we've tackled the most of the things we want to. There is, uh, I had originally thought we might talk about repressed memory, but this is, it's such a complicated issue. Like I have a whole book just on this, like just on addressing repressed memory from like a contemporary standpoint, not even okay. the history of it. So like, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, I think, uh, another one we could talk about is deja vu. I don't really want to get into that. Um, I didn't want to hit this idea of photographic memory just because yeah. there's not a whole lot to say about it. Yeah. Um, I'm probably going to, uh, offend some people when I say this, but it's just not a thing. Yeah. Um, in the research that's been done, they've seen that even people who supposedly have this photographic memory, which is in the literature, the research is referred to as eidetic memory, but I'm just going to call it photographic memory. 
even when they are really good at remembering these things, mm-hmm. they're not, they're still not perfect. Mm-hmm. And you, the, if it was a photograph, you should be able to do it perfectly. Like mm-hmm. there should be no details missing. You could even uh, recognize things that you had missed the first time if it was like a photograph. They have really good memories. They're just not exactly photographs. So this idea yeah. of like a photographic memory is not really a thing. Yeah. You can have a great memory and it's, there's just no, no one remembers things in yeah. pictures. They just don't. <laughs> and actually there was a fun experiment that I heard that someone did with this where they took the people that supposedly had a photographic memory and they're like, oh, say, so I want you to like write your name on a piece of paper, um, look at it, just remember it. And then they're like, what's the second to last letter? And people have to stop and think about it. Yeah. And because if you were looking at it, you should be able to look at the last letter um, and, and immediately mm-hmm. identify and say it, but they have to sort of think about it and go through the memory. So um, it's not as strong as a memory as if they were looking at a photograph. Yeah. So those, anyway, photographic memory, sorry people, it's, the research is there. It's just not a thing. Um, it's virtually non-existent in adults. Where it's been observed sometimes is in kids, sometimes with geriatric, geriatric populations, ironically, mm-hmm. and then sometimes the people with intellectual disabilities that were not caused by brain damage. Um, but even those are very spotty and they're not very complete and are yeah. a little bit speculative. So mostly the research just says it doesn't exist. Um, flashbulb memories. Uh, I don't know if there's a lot to go into here. This is just this idea that when you, when there's an extremely intense experience, mm-hmm. and we didn't really talk about cues in terms of like emotional events, but yeah. those totally work. Mm-hmm. Um, when there are really highly intense scenarios that you experience, you can usually recall those with greater detail and clarity later on, and they last for a longer period of time. Yeah, and emotional is always like physiological. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. So you so get this. An increased heart rate can actually lead to right. memories. Which actually, this will probably relate to, I hope we'll be getting to PTSD at some point one of these. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, that's an important yeah, one that comes to. that's exactly to. what I was thinking of. Yeah. That up. yeah. Um, and so there, uh, this idea of flashbulb memory is basically any memory that has and going back to what we've really discovered, I think, in this episode, really powerful cues associated mm-hmm. with it, both physiologically and a lot of other senses were engaged as well. The last thing I'm going to mention mm-hmm. um, is this idea of a memory palace. And um, we're not going to describe that here because I originally planned to, but it's it's so cool and there's so much to unpack there. We and gotta, I think we got to make it another episode. Yeah. And it'd be fun to actually do an exercise <clears> where <throat> like you and I like practice building a memory palace uh-huh. and we walk our listeners through at the same time. It'd be kind of fun. So, um, it's, and then also relating that back to what we've talked about today in terms of the cues and like mm-hmm. how memory sort of works. So that, that's all I got now. Okay. <laughs> that was like my last, my last leg of the journey was almost yeah. as long as the first part, but, um, so you got anything else, man? No, I think that's it. That was a long one. <laughs> that was a lot to unpack. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so general conclusions to leave you with, I think, are it's useful to think of memory in terms of the cues yeah. and how both the memory or the cues, the biology, and the behavioral responses are all linked together. Yep. And then things can easily substitute for them as yeah. well. Right? Yeah. Cues can have substitutes or like replacements yep. that work similarly, if not the same way as the cue itself. Mm-hmm. And memory is the persistence of this history um, over time. Yeah. But it's also the ongoing act of uh, continually interacting with your current circumstances. Yeah. And context. I think that's it. Boom. Awesome. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> There's only like a thousand other things to talk about with yeah. memory now. Uh, cool. I look forward to doing that. Um, and 
uh, thanks for your help with this. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, and uh, as always, thanks for listening. And uh, I think that's it. Signing yeah. off. Later. All right, so uh, we've got some listener mail that we want to cover. Uh, this is we're actually recording this quite a bit after we recorded this episode that you just heard, um, but we wanted to get this out in a timely manner. So um, it's pretty short, but we've been getting some cool feedback, and we wanted to have an opportunity to shout out to those listeners who have made it a point to contact us, which we appreciate. Yeah, and uh, and just give a little feedback and shout out to them. So. Uh, Want to read this one? Yeah, we have three different people that we're going to kind of talk about our organization today. So the first one is Steon. I hope I pronounced that correctly. So he says, Hi, I'm following and listening uh, to your podcast and like it a lot. I have a suggestion on a theme. In my country, in Denmark, uh, he's a Norwegian living in Denmark, Denmark, he said, there's a lot of neurobabble in quotation marks. People think that neuroscience and neuropedagogic... How do I say that? Neuropedagogic? <laughs> Neuropedagogic. Neuropedagogic uh, can explain a lot of behavior, and that is very important when it comes to learning interventions. People write books where they explain people's behavior from a neurobabble perspective. So my suggestion for a theme would be, quote, neurobabble and how to deal with interventions or suggestions based on neurobabble. Here's a link that covers it, and he links some material it looks like from skeptophilia.blogspot. So, where do we start with this? Uh, well, first, thanks uh, for the kind words, Stian. Uh, Stian. Um, really excited to have some listeners out in Denmark, and uh, I think that actually sounds like a really cool idea. Um, we don't, you know, we, we sort of have a sketch for topics that we want to cover over the next couple months uh, lined out, but none of them are necessarily in any particular order. So uh, hopefully we can, um, you know, basically just a matter of doing the research, making, making sure we're prepared, we have everything uh, in order that we want to say about this, but uh, that sounds actually like a lot of fun, and um, as you sort of identified already, it's kind of in our wheelhouse of stuff we like to talk about, so uh, I appreciate the suggestion, and thanks for the kind words. Yeah, and I'll just kind of double that up with I appreciate the kind words, and yeah, it's totally up our alley, so it's just a matter of us kind of getting it scheduled. Right now our process is uh, out of a giant list, we just kind of select the week before we're going to do the next week. Yeah. So I think I'd like to throw this in. Yeah, cool. Awesome. We'll, we'll, we'll add it to our queue. Thank you for the suggestion, and uh, yeah, thanks again. Nice hearing from you. All right, so the next one is uh, a gentleman that I actually spoke to on the phone named Dia. Now, he goes under the pseudonym or... Does he care that he uses his real name? No, okay. no. All right. Yeah, he knows. Everyone knows. Okay. I'll double check before we release this. Okay. Um, but he, go, he is the behavior man on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I think his Instagram handle is at the real behavior man. Okay. someone else stole his name before that. <laughs> um, but basically, he called about episode uh, two, is what it was, like our first real episode on what is psychology. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't necessarily, like, he, he liked, he, so he liked the episode, but he wasn't sure uh, if we had quite the right definition of psychology. And Psychology or behavior? Behavior, okay. sorry. And like that behavior, like psychology is the study of behavior. So sorry, it kind of goes hand in hand. So his thing was behavior analysis or behavior is a totally separate thing from psychology and it should be branded as such. And that's where kind of our discussion met. Okay. Um, But then in the way that we ended up dealing with uh, talking about what psychology studies, right? Like we kind of set it up to where psychology is a study of behavior. So like Mm -hmm. we didn't really brand it separately. Okay. 
Um, sure. So, the end of the conversation was it was uh, very professional, very humble. Uh, I've actually just started to get to know Tia, and I appreciate his perspective. So, thank you. Um, hoping you're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> if not, I'm going to make sure I send it to you. And yeah, it was. I think just kind of a a difference in opinion of like should it be branded differently than psychology, this behavioral perspective. Yeah, a few people have varying opinions on what that should be. Yeah. <laughs> so. So yeah, not too much there. Uh, other than like, it's awesome to have that feedback, and especially like a quick phone call and like, hey, I want to talk about this right now. Like he called me right after he finished the episode. Cool. Seeing um, <laughs> so was really jazz and pumped, and there was a lot of support. So I appreciate it, yeah. Um, thank you very much. Cool. Thanks, Dia. Now the last one is the dissemination of behavior analysis special interest group of the Association of Behavior Analysis International. Mm-hmm. So that uh, acronym is the DBA Sig of ABI. Yeah. And uh, it's a lot. lot. Letters and uh, yeah, so I guess you mind uh, Abraham kind of talking about like how we, what they do, and I guess how we got involved with them. Um, well, as their name implies, their primary goal is really reaching out to as many people as possible, um, and we uh, they have chosen to support uh, in part what we do here in this podcast and trying to get the word out about psychology and uh, and reach as many ears as we can. So. Um, Part of this is just a big shout out to the uh, to the disseminated behavior analysis uh, group. Say thanks for um, supporting the show. Yeah, and we've had a few different emails from the officers in those areas, or phone calls, or texts, or whatever. That uh, they're just saying, "Hey, it's awesome. Keep up the work." So not not just not only do they help us out on you know supporting financially a little bit mm-hmm. um, and helping us out with kind of like startup costs of this thing, but. Uh, those don't go un- unnoticed, and those are the things that personally kind of fuel the fire for me. When I have yeah. someone that, you know, is like, hey, this is awesome, keep going. So. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, huge thanks to the DBA SIG. Yeah, I appreciate all the support. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Why We Do What We Do. If you like what you heard and would like to support the show, please consider heading over to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Every little bit helps, and we're continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. Contact us on any social media platform at podcast or email us at info at www.podcast.com. You can learn more about this episode and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There you will find links and detailed and shareable show notes. This episode of Why We Do What We Do was written and produced by Ryan O. and Abraham. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Bessier. And music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse.